One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's spring 1985, and America is at the top of its game. Michael Jordan becomes NBA Rookie of the Year. Back to the Future hits theaters, eventually grossing over $300 million. And Prince wins three Grammys, including one for his hit Purple Rain, solidifying his status as the coolest Minnesotan in America. But far from Paisley Park lies a place that still revels in the slower pace of an earlier era, Underwood, Minnesota. The population would probably be maybe 300 people. It's a great small town, heart of lakes country. It's largely rural. I think there's one four-way stop in the middle of town as small town as you can probably get. It's here, far from the hustle and hassle of the big city, where 13-year-old Sarah Ann Rarden is living out the simple existence of a small town girl. Her main concerns are playing with her friends, going to school, and just goofing around. Sarah really did love life. She was always singing and just had a presence about her. At five foot two, Sarah is scrappy and skinny. Sarah was a thin girl, and when I say thin, I mean really thin. Sarah was kind of a beanpole. I remember her long, skinny arms. She was bubbly, she was outgoing, she was friendly. Life seemed really, really good. A good young lady. Her smile was infectious. She just brought happiness into every room. But life at Sarah's home, a farmhouse four miles from town, is far from peaceful. She lives with her father, John, her stepmother, Marilyn, and a brood of 10 stepbrothers and sisters. They didn't live in the biggest house, and that's a lot of kids to have in there in one space. Sarah's biological mother was not in the picture. And so when John remarried, that made the situation even harder for Sarah because Marilyn, John's new wife, had children of her own. 
all under one roof now. John Rarden, the family patriarch, works hard as a mechanic to support his large family. John was sort of tall, a little bit lanky, the kind of person who was used to working hard and working outdoors. Likeable guy, friendly, fun to talk to, was hardworking. I know he did a lot of tire repair out on farms and stuff for tractors and trucks and so on and so forth. Sarah and her father John have a special relationship. She's the apple of his eye and his only biological daughter from his first marriage. And she's the spitting image of her mother. Linda was his first wife. Sarah's mom didn't have custody of her and her brothers at the time. John did. Even as young as kindergarten, I never heard anything about her real mother. At only 13, Sarah is forced to take on grown-up responsibilities. When she's not in school, she works with her father at the shop or helps her stepmother, Marilyn, who she doesn't always see eye to eye with. As far as I knew and anyone else knew, there was a lot of tension there. Sarah's relationship with Marilyn, I think, was strained in large part because of her kind of being John's favorite. Marilyn may have resented that. Marilyn treated her differently than the other children. She was hard on Sarah and required her to do a lot of household activities and that sort of thing. Sarah also has a stressful relationship with her older stepbrother, 16-year-old Jeff. Jeff, a high school dropout, is the oldest boy in the household. He's got a bad temper and has directed that temper towards Sarah in the past. She had a stepbrother and there was definitely tension. You could definitely tell every single one of them experienced the tension and the stress. Despite her strained home life, the smart and bubbly seventh grader thrives at school. Sarah had, I thought, a really good relationship with our teachers. Sarah was kind of a teacher's pet. She was bright. She was social. She talked to people. She didn't just sit there in her chair like I probably did. She wanted to do something to help people, either be a doctor or maybe being a teacher. She was a really good student. She was really smart. She was good at math and science. Underwood School is like a second home to Sarah. She's always happy to stay late for sports or an after-school project. May 20th was a day like any other day. It was sunny, a really nice Minnesota spring day. Sarah was wearing her yellow shoes, her jeans, and her teddy bear shirt. There were about four days of school left, and so it was our last week. We were all pretty excited. Sarah and her friend Joe stay late at school working on a home economics project. Afterwards, they walk down to the local convenience store in town, the Undermart. The Undermart? It's located about a half a block from where the high school is. The children would go next door to pick up their candy and their pop and their potato chips and, and hang out there. We went over there, bought our penny balloons and put them in our pockets and had big plans for the next day. They plan on having a big water balloon fight at school. And so we kept kind of concocting that plan as we went back out on the playground behind the school and were just basically fooling around until about 5.30 when then I had to call my sister to come and get me. When Joe's sister pulls up in the family car to fetch her, she offers Sarah a ride. We did offer her a ride that day and she said no. 
She said, no, um, my dad will be coming by and he'll give me a ride home. Sarah waits for her father. When he doesn't show up, she assumes he's stuck at work. After waiting at the school a while, Sarah decided to start walking home when John hadn't come by. It's not uncommon in some of these farming communities. They're small enough where people, if they're close enough, they'll walk home or at least start walking home. In this case, that's what Sarah did. It's a long four-mile walk down Whiskey Road to the Raritan House. Whiskey Road was a county road blacktop that headed east of town. It was like any other country road in that part of the state of Minnesota. Very scenic, trees, lakes, hills, curves. It's pretty much an isolated road, other than the traffic that's going by. There were people from Underwood who were on that road that afternoon and actually offered to give her a ride. But she knew her father was coming, and so she declined. Sarah waves off all passersby, happy to make her way on a beautiful spring day. At 7 p.m. at the Raritan home, Marilyn looks at the clock. Sarah is still not home. Normally, if she were to walk home, she probably would have been home by 7 o'clock, or even a little before. John calls Marilyn from Fergus Falls, asking her if she needs anything brought from Fergus to the farm in Underwood. It's at that point that Marilyn tells John that Sarah's not home. John didn't get home towards 7.30, and when he came home, Marilyn said to him, well, Sarah hasn't come home, and they worried about it. Marilyn and her oldest son, Jeff, drive around to look for Sarah. John says he'll stay home in case Sarah calls the house. Concern soon turns to panic. Sarah would never, never disappear. She would always go home after school, but on that date, she did not get home. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 13-year-old Sarah Ann Rarden set out on a four-mile walk home from school along a secluded rural Minnesota road. She never arrived. All of a sudden, she just seemed to vanish. After driving back roads and calling friends, the Rairdens turned to police. In the early evening hours, uh, the Ottertail County Sheriff's Office received a call from, I believe, John Rairden that his daughter, Sarah Ann Rearden, had not returned home from school. They went out and searched to see if she was hurt or something or if she was somewhere on the road and fell down or whatever. Detective Chuck Sherbrook begins the investigation immediately. We had the family fill out a missing persons form. And from there, we put out teletypes. They call the teletypes back then to different counties and cities, you know, looking for this girl. This is what she was wearing. Last seen leaving school at a certain time. We didn't know if she had ran away from home, went to visit with a friend, but she was missing. When a young girl disappears, there's always the possibility she could have run from problems at home. Or worse, perhaps a family member could be involved in her disappearance. The good practice in police work is to look at the family first. Most crimes involve someone that knows the other person rather than a stranger. We wanted to find out, where were you, John Reardon? the night she disappeared. He was working at a field, changing a tire at another piece of property. I believe Marilyn might have just got home from work at that time. Marilyn let John do most of the talking. She just wasn't real open to saying very much. But she does tell them she and Jeff went searching for Sarah that night. Investigators learn that Sarah was with her friend Joe after school that day and they waste no time finding out what she might know. I was in bed sleeping, I think it was after midnight, and one of the sheriff's deputies came to our house to talk to me, um, to get some questions answered. And so when my mom came and woke me up, it was a complete shock when they told me that she hadn't gotten home that night. Joe tells them every detail about the prior afternoon, right down to the teddy bear t-shirt Sarah was wearing. The next day, news of Sarah's disappearance whispers through the hallways at Underwood School. I remember sitting in the second row and somebody asking me if I got the phone call. 
And I said, what phone call? I still didn't know what was going on. And then they said, well, everybody got called looking to find out if they knew where Sarah was. Everyone was like, what's going on? What happened? Why didn't she get home? And just fear. None of us believed she ran away. We all just thought something really bad happened to her. There was no Amber Alert, no social media, Facebook, Twitter, alerting the media or um, alerting people in the community, hey, we have a missing kid. It just kind of slowly filtered out to the community. By this afternoon, about 30 volunteers had joined the search for Sarah Rarden. She was last seen Monday walking the few miles from school to her home. We had the sheriff's posse on horses come to help search. We had helicopters up looking for her. We had sniffing dogs uh, searching for her. Kevin Wallavand of WDAY News is one of a swarm of local reporters following the story. We headed down to Underwood to do the initial, we have a missing girl story. And then that was quickly followed by stories about the community mobilizing an army of volunteers. On this Memorial Day, the Underwood School cafeteria became a headquarters in search of Sarah Raritan. People really did volunteer and help out whether they knew her or not. Posters of Sarah, thousands of them, were folded, addressed, then sent to cities all over America. It was a plea from the family and people of Underwood. We had missing posters made up. They were all around town. The community, not only of Underwood, but surrounding communities all came together. People folded flyers, people went out in the grass, and there was a real sense that we can find her, we can bring her home, we have hope. We're just one big family in this community and just helping each other out. Sarah's father, John, leads the volunteer search for his missing daughter, even going on TV to plead for her safe return. We're under a lot of strain, you know. We don't know what happened or we don't know, you know, whether she's hurt or anything. And, Yes, I know. We combed the area north, south, east, west, trying to locate her, but we had negative results. With the passage of time, officials are becoming less and less optimistic of finding the young teenager unharmed. Sarah is one of 11 children. Her mother says she would never run away, and the family is taking this hard. I don't know where she is. I wish I did. Even if it was bad news, it would be better than no news at all. The people of Underwood do everything they can to help, while fear takes hold of the town. Everyone was scared. Where you would normally see kids out and about on their own, on their bikes, walking, suddenly it was much more of a ghost town. Unfortunately, stories of disappearing children have become all too familiar. It is every parent's worst fear, and it is happening more and more often. Children are kidnapped. While these stories often have happy endings, sometimes a parent's worst fear is realized. I don't know who would do this to a six-year-old child. I can't conceive of it. But in the 80s, the nation decided enough was enough, and a plan was hatched to help find these missing kids. Sarah's disappearance would have been shortly after the milk carton campaigns involving missing children were initiated. 1984 saw the first milk carton ads appear across the country, bearing the face of six-year-old Aton Pates, who went missing from a New York City street corner. We are trying to locate a lost child by the name of Aton Pates. This trend spreads across the country, 
with more and more faces filling up the sides of milk cartons around the nation. To the people of Underwood, these milk carton ads were a product of dangerous cities, not a small town like theirs. But Sarah's disappearance changes all of that. The community even attaches a picture of Sarah to local Pepsi bottles, their own take on the milk carton campaign. Sarah was on the Pepsi bottle. 20,000 bottle hangers are being printed for now. They will be hung on two-liter Pepsi bottles wherever Pepsi is sold in most of the tri-state area. The flyer is an effort to remind people that Sarah still has not been found. It's really etched in our minds, that picture of that just cute, innocent little girl. All of the publicity sparks a flood of tips. The tips were coming in. People either thought they saw something or knew something or had a theory about what had happened. A lot of hours trying to sift through what seemed legitimate to check out and what just seemed crazy. Police follow up on each and every tip. Most are fruitless. But on May 22, 1985, a neighbor contacts investigators with an interesting bit of information. We did get a call from an individual who said that he was on the Whiskey Road and observed Sarah walking, but also he had thought he had saw a green car on the road that same day. He had described that after he had passed her and he continued down the road, he had observed a green Chevrolet that had been traveling in front of him slow and turn into a farm approach. And then as he went by it and proceeded down the road, he saw that it turned around and, and started driving back in the direction of Sarah. The green Chevrolet is the type of lead police have been waiting for. They are determined to find the driver. We ran all the license plates in Minnesota involving a green vehicle about that year in vintage. And it was just hundreds. While they pour over their vehicle records, hundreds of other leads continue to come in from across the state. There was a brief moment where somebody said, well, maybe her mom came and got her because her mom wasn't in the picture. I recall a psychic saying that she envisioned Sarah in an outbuilding near a lake. People that thought they might have seen her in Texas, at truck stops in Iowa. A girl was seen, I believe in Montana, in a semi. Ottertail County Sheriff Glenn Melby says the word is out about the missing girl and there have been several leads but none of the clues have panned out. But while detectives painstakingly investigate each lead, the community continues to grow more and more anxious. Then, on July 6th, seven weeks after Sarah's disappearance, a farmer is working in his field. He notices that his cows aren't going near a certain patch. Grass has grown up, thistles have grown up. He went over to check it out. The overgrown grass is near a large drainage ditch. As he approaches, he's immediately hit with a foul smell. He peers inside the ditch and makes a gruesome discovery. That's when he found the skeleton remains of a small person, and the only clothing was a pink T-shirt with two teddy bears on it. It had to be Sarah Reardon. You can't really accept it yet. I don't think that she's not coming back. It was a Sunday morning. My dad came down, I thought, to just wake me up to go to church. He sat next to me, 
and said, I am sorry I have to tell you this, but they found Sarah yesterday. I remember crying and covering my ears and just being completely out of sorts. I don't know that I was sophisticated enough to believe that somebody would murder her until they found her body. I got a call from the sheriff. He, he said, Mike, we found Sarah. He was very sad. The search for Sarah Raritan is over, but the mystery is not. A farmer cutting thistles in this pasture found Sarah's body late Saturday. People were sobbing. People were angry. All this time and effort we put into trying to find Sarah, they wanted more answers. Sarah's body is taken to the coroner's office for an autopsy. There were no skull injuries that would suggest blunt force injury. But in her stomach area, there was a piece of mummified skin. And you could see like there was hole marks. There was this small cylindrical hole in her shirt that seemed to correspond to a hole in the skin that remained in the stomach. The presence of the puncture wound suggests that she was stabbed, confirming that the people of Underwood, Minnesota have a homicide on their hands. But before they can shift their focus to finding answers, they must say goodbye to the little girl in the teddy bear t-shirt. Nearly the entire town mourned Sarah's death in the gymnasium of her school, a death difficult to understand not only because Sarah was so young, but because of the troubling way she died. It was packed, absolutely packed. There were probably around 500 people in there. Her classmates had written special notes to Sarah. People who missed her smile, her quirky laugh. I remember looking at the family and how torn up they were feeling just horrible for them. John Reardon, he looked away and just said, I can't believe someone would do this to a little girl. Whoever did this is gonna pay. Once Sarah is laid to rest, the attention of the community returns to tracking down her killer. And her small town of Underwood, Minnesota is struggling with the thought that there may be a murderer on the loose. You know, is it gonna happen in our town? Is there someone on the loose that we should be aware of? Was it a serial-type killer that's running the streets? We didn't know. The police officers and the detectives with the Ottertail County Sheriff's Department, they were eating and breathing this case. That's what I worked on every day, 12, 14, 15-hour days. Not only me, but the other investigators also. Their prime focus? The whereabouts of that green Chevy that was seen making a U-turn on Whiskey Road the day of Sarah's disappearance. Early on, there had been a tip about a green Chevrolet. One of the witnesses had observed in the same area where he had described Sarah walking along the county road. After a lot of effort by law enforcement, they were able to identify a person who had the requisite green Chevrolet. Detectives track him down and immediately question him about his commute and whether or not he has ever driven on Whiskey Road. He not only recalled driving on that road, but recalled making the turn into a farm approach to turn around. But when they try to place him at the scene of the crime on the day of Sarah's abduction, they run into a roadblock. Sarah went missing on May 20th, a Monday. Wasn't the same day that Sarah was walking on the road. It was a day prior to her disappearance. 
police confirm his whereabouts and eliminate him as a suspect. Their most promising lead is a wash. One month after the discovery of Sarah's body, there are still no new promising leads. John Reardon goes public again, this time to raise awareness about missing children. He was the face of families with missing children. He did panels. He was involved with the Attorney General of Minnesota at the time, doing speeches. He was involved in starting an organization for people whose children had gone missing. He wanted to be a leader in finding missing kids. But for those tasked with finding Sarah's killer, each passing day brings less and less hope that they will succeed. I think the detectives thought, you know, where do we turn? Wheels are spinning, and it seemed like the case just wasn't going anywhere. Then the bombshell. Shortly after Sarah's disappearance, officials found a notebook in her school. But it's only now that investigators take a closer look at the contents. She had a poetry book, but it's what she wrote that was really jarring and really set up some red flags. Well, she just talked about uh, uh, death and violent death and, and uh, asking somebody not to kill her. John Clennard said that paper, combined with Sarah Ann's tendency to want to stay late at school, made him suspect serious problems at home. This information is alarming, and detectives decide to question the family to figure out what was going on at home. Their attention quickly shifts to one of the children who seems very reluctant to help with the investigation, Jeff. It was well known in the community that Sarah didn't get along with her step-siblings, especially Jeff. Based on his age and the tense relationship he had with her, they worry he may have been the reason Sarah's writing such morbid poetry. Sarah's stepbrother could have done something to her. Perhaps Jeff had been outside the house and had intercepted Sarah before she got home and had done something to her. Jeff is tight-lipped with them at first, but over time, the stress of the situation forces him to break down and admit a dark family secret. Many years ago, he had tried to force Sarah into having sex with him. Detectives are stunned. They go on to ask if he was involved in Sarah's death. Jeff says he wasn't. We didn't really have a viable opportunity for him to have committed the crime, and more importantly, an opportunity for him to have moved the body from that area to 30 miles away because he didn't have a driver's license or access to a motor vehicle. Marilyn and some of the other children also confirmed that Jeff was at the house with them when Sarah went missing. So police decide to take a second look into the rest of the family's alibis. Well, initially in the investigation, we had checked the family, where they were and their locations. On that evening of May 20th, our perception was that everyone had an alibi. We went back and talked to the siblings. That's kind of where the break kind of came in for us. While interviewing Sarah's stepsisters about the family's whereabouts on May 20th, they uncover another dark family secret. One of the siblings says, you know, John and Sarah have a thing going. 
she tells him that I know that because my sister walked in on a situation where John was having sex with Sarah. This is a shocking revelation. That really turned the page right there, to be very honest with you. Detectives seized the moment. They decided before John gets wind of what's going on or anything else, we want to talk to him. Detectives call John, not letting on what they have just heard, and he agrees to meet them at his home when he gets off of work. When John Reardon returned home from work, Lieutenant Kostler and Agent Jacobson confronted him, saying, John, do you and Sarah have anything going on? Are you having a sexual relationship? Of course, he denied it. But after speaking to them for, I don't know how long a period of time, he did confess that they had something going on. He said, well, I did, but it only happened once. And then by the end of that interview, it was 10 or 20 times. For John Reardon, it was a power thing. It was finding ways to not get discovered. The man who police spent so much time with over the summer is now their lead suspect. Here you have a, a guy that's having sex with his daughter who's 13 years of age. Now you got a motive. But while John admits to the sexual abuse, he's still adamant that he had nothing to do with her death. Police continue to question him, but he doesn't budge from his story. We kind of, John, I said, you know, is there something that you want to tell us? He said, you know, we, we really got to find the killer. We got to find out who killed my daughter. And I said, yeah, we do. We need to get this solved. And I said, John, were you involved? And he would deny, deny. Without him admitting that he killed Sarah, we would have a very difficult time proving it, particularly since he had an iron-clad alibi. Weeks earlier, detectives had confirmed that John was in another town, changing a tire on a farmer's property shortly before Sarah was abducted. There is no way John could have driven from that location to pick up Sarah and kill her. But after John's confession to the sexual abuse, Detective Sherbrooke decides to return to that farmer and ask him a few follow-up questions. So then they asked him, you know, can you show us in the field where you were when he was fixing this tire? And he said, oh, sure. And so they start to leave his house. And they expect that he's going to just show them on his farm where it is. And he says, well, no, we got to go for a ride. I was at a farm that I rent over by Underwood. It was only about four miles away from where Sarah disappeared. So it gave him ample time to drive from that field, drive down the whiskey road, find Sarah, and kill her. Police asked John to return to the station. I think he knew that his story was unraveling, initially denying that there was sexual abuse, and then when pressed by investigators who were relentless, he finally just broke. John, at that point, says to Chuck, Chuck, I killed Sarah. Chuck, he says, you may want to check my toolbox in my truck. It'll be a red toolbox, and inside the red toolbox there will be an owl, which is like an ice pick. And I said, okay. I said, why is that, John? He said, because there may be blood or something on it. We read him his Miranda rights. We turned the recorder on. And we interviewed with him about killing Sarah. They decided 
to do another interview by videotape. And in the police station, on videotape, John Reardon finally tells detectives what happened to Sarah on May 20th, 1985. What he told me is that on the day that she died, he had picked her up. I can only imagine that she was smiling, skipping, singing, because that was just her way. They drove a mile or two out of town to where there used to be an old vacant house. I think he used to take her there quite often to have sex. And I believe what happened that day, I think she said, no, dad, this ain't gonna happen anymore. I'm 13 years old. Sarah was getting to the age where she wanted to be normal. And she started refusing John Reardon's advances and he would become angry. She runs down the gravel road. John chases her. He confronts her. And he stabs her in her stomach. While her own siblings were at home having dinner and watching TV, Sarah's dying at the hands of her father. I stabbed her in the lower stomach. The next thing I can see is her laying on the ground, blood all over. Where was the blood? The blood was all over her stomach. John leaves Sarah's body and returns to the house. Marilyn's worried because Sarah hasn't come home yet and takes Jeff with her to search the area. But instead of staying to man the phones, once Marilyn leaves, John returns to the scene of the crime. He wrapped her body in a rug or a sheet, drove her to Rotsay, Minnesota, and threw her into a ditch. Once John confesses to the murder of Sarah, the news spreads like wildfire throughout the small community. There was a feeling in the community that was, they were so angry. I think the community was betrayed, at the very least. John, who had been all over the newspaper, all over the TV, begging for his daughter's safe return, he'd been playing with us this whole time. It was such a betrayal. We supported him. Marilyn Reardon seems to be the most surprised by her husband's confession. Marilyn Reardon said today she was shocked Tuesday night when sheriff's officials told her her husband had confessed to the murder of their daughter. Being a mom or a stepmom, I think you may know that or get a gut feeling that something isn't right. But did she definitely know that? I can't say that she did. We believed that she knew. We believed that it would be hard to prove. She's never expressed anything to anybody. I wish she had. John is charged with first-degree murder and criminal sexual conduct in the first degree. After a three-week trial, the jury reaches a verdict. John was convicted by a jury for the murder of Sarah Ann Reardon and also the sexual abuse of Sarah Ann Reardon. He was sentenced to life. John Reardon once asked the public to help him find his missing daughter. Today, he sat quietly in court as the jury concluded he was his daughter's killer. I remember the reaction in Underwood. No elation, no celebration that he was found guilty. There was just really this deep, deep sadness 
This was the end of the story, and it was such a tragic ending. After the trial, the town of Underwood struggles to put this horrible ordeal behind them. But in 1991, John resurfaces in a prison interview on TV. There was a show called Confessions of a Crime that aired on cable. When the reporter asks him about his slain daughter, he gives a chilling response. I don't really think of Sarah very often. I really don't. But I just can't change the past. I couldn't believe John's reaction because we think about Sarah all the time. She's just a part of us. He killed his own daughter. And how that can't just live with him night and day is beyond me. The 1980s tragically brought missing children's cases to the public eye through milk cartons and television programs. Sarah's disappearance and murder broke the small town of Underwood, but then brought them even closer together. I think even today, her classmates remember her for her laughter, her smile, but these women now have families of their own, and they remember Sarah for being brave enough to say no to her father. I just feel like she had such a bright light. Why did you take that away from her and away from us? I think she could have probably been anything she wanted to be. I think she would have had a great, a great life, I really do. She could have done great things in this world. The whole world, not only us from Underwood, have lost out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.